Hi everyone, I just wanted to give you a quick heads up before we actually get started. This issue of Comics on Consoles is going to be the first in the series to contain explicit language because Deadpool has absolutely no idea how to have a conversation without talking about his crotch, or Rogue's crotch, or Cable's crotch, or, well, just crotches in general. Also, this month's subject game has been rated M for Mature by the Entertainment Software Ratings Board, and we'll be sampling some audio clips from it over the course of this issue. Enjoy. Hmm. How much C4 is this gonna take? It's no more than 20 ounces. What? Oh, I hate the metric system! How much in American? Well, let's see. You carry the seven... Uh... Dude, fuck math! Just use all of it! That was pretty sweet, though. Welcome to issue number four of Comics on Consoles, a podcast dedicated to the in-depth discussion and analysis of video games which are based on the modern mythology of comic books and their timeless characters. I'm your host, Chris Clow, and this month, we're going to be getting into some zany territory. This issue is going to be a little different when compared with previous ones, because I feel that in order to most effectively tell the story of our subject game, I need to dive a little deeper into a few specific elements. Namely, this character's history, up through his brand new film adaptation, as well as a bit more of my own personal perspective on him. It's a pretty interesting story, so I'm sure that you'll, at the very least, find it hopefully as interesting as I do. So without further ado, let's jump in. You may have noticed that this month, which is February of 2016 for those of you who may be listening from the future... What's promised to be a very eventful year for comics-based cinema has gotten off to an early start with the release of the 20th Century Fox film Deadpool, starring Ryan Reynolds and directed by Tim Miller. The release of this film is something of a triumph, since a movie about this character with this actor has been lingering in development hell for the better part of a decade. There have been a lot of questions surrounding whether or not the Deadpool film would actually work when it finally made it to the screen, largely because Marvel's Merc with a Mouth is something of an enigma when compared to many of his comrades from the House of Ideas. Almost since the very beginning, Deadpool in the comics has had a strange, ethereal awareness of the fact that he's a fictional character and knows which medium he's appearing in at all times, whether it's comics, animation, movie, or a video game. Also, a fair amount of fans and general observers have cited the fact that a hard R rating for a comic book movie especially one featuring a very recognizable character from one of the big two publishers, was a crapshoot. By now, though, we're a couple of weeks removed from the film's theatrical bow, and one thing can be said for certain. The Deadpool movie is an unqualified success. Because of the way the rights to the character have been maintained by 20th Century Fox, Deadpool is solidly tied to the X-Men series of films that have been produced by the studio, and as of late February, and because of that association, Deadpool has already become the highest-grossing X-Men film in terms of unadjusted domestic box office dollars. The conventional wisdom that would seem to indicate that Wade Wilson's movie had a major hurdle in front of it because of its R rating 
has been decisively decapitated with a twin set of katanas since Deadpool has already grossed more money domestically than all of the previous X-Men films. That includes the two solo films featuring Hugh Jackman's Wolverine, in addition to the critical and commercial smash X-Men Days of Future Past released in 2014. The previous domestic box office champion was actually the mediocre third entry in the series, 2006's X-Men The Last Stand. That film had a full domestic gross of $234.4 million, and Deadpool has managed to surpass that entire total by being in theaters for less than two weeks. I wish I could tell you that I saw this coming, but I didn't. In fact, I dedicated my weekly article Comics on Film, which is available every Friday at movies.com, to the topic of how Deadpool could be both helped and hurt by an R rating. In hindsight, though, I likely should have called on my six-plus years as a comic book retailer instead of my amateurish hand at box office analysis. While the Deadpool character has always had a devoted fanbase, I was dealing comic books at the time of the explosion of his current wave of popularity, and it wasn't exactly kids that were interested in reading about the Merc with a Mouth. It was high school graduates and college students. It was this explosion of popularity which led Activision into the development of this month's subject game, a full-on exploration and solo adventure that's set inside the fourth-wall-breaking, ass-backwards world of Wade Wilson himself. Before we get into the ins and outs of the video game, though, let me tell you a bit more about my journey towards appreciation for Deadpool. As nearly as I can tell, Deadpool's small appearance in the 2009 film X-Men Origins Wolverine seemed to set off quite a lot of renewed interest in the character. It wasn't too long after the film's release that my fellow comic book peddlers and I, hi Roman, were starting to notice the fact that the relatively young new Deadpool comic series, written by Daniel Way with art by Peco Medina, was consistently selling out in our store. On top of that, our efforts to reorder those issues from Diamond Comics Distributors, which serves every comic book specialty store in the United States, would often come up fruitless, leaving us to wait for an inevitable second printing. This would continue pretty solidly for over a year. Of the first 18 issues of Daniel Way's run on the title, 14 of them would have to go back to press for a subsequent printing and the long stretch of this trend started at virtually the exact same time that the first solo Wolverine film was released in theaters. Ever since then, the Deadpool character has been adopted as a favorite by many kinds of fans, a lot of which aren't exactly your typical comics readers. While working at the comic book store, I certainly encountered, hmm, how do I put this? A lot of college kids wearing trucker caps and J-Lo sunglasses, asking about Deadpool issues, which was very strange for me. So, personally, for quite a while, I was basically turned off to Deadpool. As an ardent defender of Superman, I would sometimes find myself getting into verbal squabbles with a fresh-off-the-street Deadpool bro who would undermine my efforts of trying to show people a good Superman book by idiotically and simply saying something along the lines of, Superman sucks. He's not even funny. Deadpool rules. Now, not all of the Deadpool faithful rubbed me the wrong way by any means. Some very solid friendships I made at the comic book store were with people who came in based on their interest in Deadpool and developed enjoyment of several other comics along the way. Because of my inherent bias, though, I tend to get a little annoyed 
when someone dismisses characters I really gravitate toward completely out of hand. Curiosity, though, would eventually win out. I'd only encountered Deadpool sparingly over my then three-year tenure at that comic book store job because he would only occasionally show up in an X-Men title I'd be reading, or Spider-Man would get into a fun verbal spat with him from time to time. I eventually became very curious about Wade's adventures, though, so I picked up an early issue of Daniel Way's run on the title. What I found inside was something that would endear me to Wade forever by a simple admission he would make to someone who had him tied up in Daniel Way's issue number 17. He admitted, Cows scare the shit out of me. <laughs> As someone who appreciates surreal humor, that line was so far out of left field compared with what I was expecting that I couldn't help but be charmed and taken along for the ride. Since then, I've been a Deadpool fan. He's not my favorite comics character, but in the right mood... A solid, surreal, and off-the-wall Deadpool story could be the perfect cap to an eventful day, or a fun diversion. Things weren't always this way for Deadpool, though. In the magazine accompanying British company Eagle Moss's 2008 lead figurine of Deadpool, number 56 in their classic Marvel figurine collection, Fabian Nicieza talked about the process that went into creating Deadpool. When co-creator Rob Liefeld first presented his character design sketches to Nicieza, the latter commented by telling Liefeld something that seemed obvious. He told him, This is Deathstroke. On top of the very similar visual look of this new character in DC Comics' enhanced one-eyed warrior who often vexed the Teen Titans, Deadpool would also have physical enhancements that made the character a rather blatant facsimile of the distinguished competition's highly skilled bounty hunter. It wasn't exactly an accident, either. Liefeld was a noted fan of the Teen Titans, apparently including the legendary run of Marv Wolfman and George Perez, which created Deathstroke. From there came Nicieza's major touch in distinguishing Deadpool from Deathstroke, the personality. Nicieza said that Liefeld's contributions were in the distinct and popular visual philosophy that went into the character, while Nicieza would help to craft his speaking patterns, mannerisms, and overall personality. The deviation from the template of Deathstroke would only grow more pronounced as time would go on, and began by giving him a sense of humor that Slade Wilson most definitely did not have. In his first appearance in 1991's New Mutants No. 98, he was something of a wisecracker, but his humor seemed like it was trying to be more unsettling than uproarious. Later contributions to the character by writers like Joe Kelly, as well as the likes of Mark Wade, the aforementioned Daniel Way, and comedian Brian Passane have helped establish the character's now very strong, surreal roots, as well as a degree of lampooning commentary and overall narrative haphazardness. Reading a good Deadpool book can be an experience akin to jumping into a bumper car under the influence of Sudafed. Bumpy, exhilarating, funny, maybe a little nauseating, but also with a degree of guilty fun. This is especially true of Daniel Way's consistent sellout of a run, which would be a solid critical and commercial success through the entirety of Way's four-year tenure on the book. When Marvel announced the Marvel Now relaunch initiative for 2012, though, Way would be exiting the title to allow a new creative team to come on board. At the 2012 edition of San Diego's Comic-Con International, Way announced his exit from the title by saying, quote, 
It's been the most fun I've ever had working on a series, and I've been able to write every kind of story with this character. He finished his time at the panel by saying that he has another thing on the horizon, which would end up being the Marvel Now relaunch of Marvel's famous anti-hero team of the Thunderbolts, which would include the likes of Elektra, the Punisher, and Deadpool. Still, though, San Diego Comic-Con 2012 is where the story of the Deadpool video game truly begins. At the Marvel Games panel put on by longtime publishing collaborator Activision, representatives from a San Diego-based game development house called High Moon Studios sat on the dais to announce that they were developing a video game based on the notorious Marvel character... Hitmonkey? Daniel Way created the fierce, murderous primate during his run on Deadpool and immediately branded him as the world's greatest assassin. Fans in the audience were visibly confused. That is, until this happened. Um, you know, uh, we've been really lucky at, at, at High Moon to work on licenses we really care about. And uh, I've been a long time Marvel fan. <laughs> Excuse me, this is a close panel. It may be a little hard to tell, but that's the sound of Deadpool himself crashing the panel. After going on a small rant insulting the assembled High Moon developers and a couple of gleeful members of the audience, Deadpool revealed a short teaser trailer for his upcoming video game, which was given a 2013 release window. Not long afterward, Deadpool would also publish his own article about the upcoming game on Marvel.com where he writes, quote, I, Deadpool, hired Peter Della Pena and his physically embarrassing team at High Moon Studios for two reasons. First, because of their close proximity to Mexico so I can get fresh, authentic chimichangas delivered daily, said Deadpool, newly self-appointed head of High Moon Studios and supreme commander of PR, marketing, legal, and just about everything I want to be in charge of at Activision Publishing Incorporated. Second, if High Moon can make an amazing game about big transforming robots look cool, then they can surely make me look amazing in a third-person action video game from all angles. Seriously, Peter, my bottom is my good side, so don't screw this up. End quote. The article would go on to reveal that Daniel Way wasn't quite done with solo Deadpool yet, as he would be writing the story, and the developers at High Moon seemed pretty gleeful about the fact that this was going to be a uniquely self-referential project that they get to craft. Starting life as Sammy Entertainment in 2001, High Moon Studios used to be a partner with Sierra Entertainment before they were eventually acquired by Vivendi Games. Vivendi eventually became Vivendi Universal Games, publisher of last month's subject game Hulk, and then after some confusing name shuffling, High Moon became a direct subsidiary of Activision Blizzard after Vivendi and Activision merged in 2007. High Moon's first developed game was 2005's Dark Watch Curse of the West, a first-person shooter which was released for the PS2 and Xbox consoles. It was a very interesting hybrid western steampunk and horror title, and was anticipated to be the first installment of a new cross-media franchise, including its own comics, a new game, and even a feature film. Unfortunately though, there hasn't been any forward momentum on any of these projects for some time. Their second game was a third-person action stealth project based on the popular Jason Bourne franchise created by author Robert Ludlum. The Bourne Conspiracy was released in June of 2008 for the Xbox 360 and PlayStation 3, 
Though its reception was somewhat mixed, it was generally positive, garnering solid scores from notable outlets like G4TV, IGN, and GameSpot. From there, High Moon would go on to develop a series of games based on the Hasbro toy line Transformers, which included two original games and one tie-in for the series' third film adaptation from director Michael Bay. In 2010, they released Transformers War for Cybertron, taking place prior to the Transformers' arrival on Earth during a perilous civil war between the Autobots and the Decepticons. It also garnered generally positive reviews, and they followed that up with the movie tie-in Transformers Dark of the Moon. This would ultimately prove to be the first pronounced critical stumble for High Moon, since the game only garnered mixed reviews with Metacritic placing the game's score at 59 out of 100. In 2012, they followed up their first original Transformers effort by releasing Transformers Fall of Cybertron, which returned to the third-person shooter format of their first effort with the license, gaining back a generally positive critical reception in the process. It was this that would ultimately lead them into the job of developing Deadpool, which was presumably handed off to them by Activision in order to take advantage of the publisher's ongoing licensing deal with Marvel. By that point, Activision had created a grand total of 34 other Marvel-based video games, with the first partnership between the two being 1986's Howard the Duck, released for the Amstrad CPC, the Apple II, the Commodore 64, the MSX, and the ZX Spectrum. The majority of Marvel games produced by Activision would be between the year 2000 and 2014, with the fighting game X-Men Mutant Academy kicking off the accord on the original PlayStation and the Game Boy Color. Deadpool would ultimately prove to be the penultimate game released by a collaboration between Marvel and Activision, but we'll get into that a little bit more later on. The short teaser trailer that premiered at the Comic-Con panel by Deadpool himself didn't really give much of an indication towards what kind of game this would be. The trailer's major point instead was in selling the personality of the title character, and to emphasize to people that this would be just as much of a fourth-wall-breaking, vulgar, and surreal experience as any of Daniel Way's other work with the character. Perhaps the most key element to pushing that personality forward in the game rested with the man who would be bringing Wade's voice to life, a man whose name is now virtually synonymous with any number of AAA video game franchises he lends his voice to. That man is Nolan North. To video game fans, North is probably most recognized as the voice of thief and explorer Nathan Drake in the PlayStation-exclusive franchise Uncharted, developed by Naughty Dog. He got his start as a voiceover artist in video games by playing a character in the PC-exclusive vehicular combat release Interstate 82. From there, he would intersect with other popular franchises like God of War as Hades, as well as early releases in the Call of Duty series, and a couple of additional voices in installments of the EverQuest series. His first intersection with the characters of Marvel Comics came in 2005, when he played a guard in Radical Entertainment's Incredible Hulk Ultimate Destruction. In 2006, he would provide voices for both the Avenger Hawkeye and Ghost Rider in the first Marvel Ultimate Alliance game, and two of his most closely identified game franchises, as Desmond Miles in Assassin's Creed and as Drake in Uncharted, would release their first installments within six days of each other in North America. This would ultimately lead him into his current status as something of a voiceover superstar. 
Particularly in the case of Uncharted, it was pretty easy to see why he would become such an in-demand talent. While he does have an impressive vocal range when he decides to call upon it, there's an innately fun and relatable quality to his delivery, which would help to inform his pitch-perfect, zany, and slightly crazed iteration of Deadpool's voice. North actually first portrayed Wade Wilson in animation, in the Marvel animated feature Hulk vs., which contained two short films, Hulk vs. Wolverine and Hulk vs. Thor. He would then transition to playing the part in video games by playing the Ultimate Universe version of Deadpool, a boss character, in 2010's Spider-Man Shattered Dimensions. After a few other game portrayals of Wade, most notably in Marvel vs. Capcom 3, it came time for the solo entry in the 2013 Deadpool video game. Because of North's inclusion, I can confidently say one thing right up front. His performance should count as one of the primary factors in your decision to play this game. As for Deadpool and his own video game appearances, he wouldn't appear in digital form until 2005, when Raven Software and Activision released X-Men Legends 2 Rise of Apocalypse. This began voice actor John Kasser's association with the Deadpool character in the interactive environment, and he would go on to voice Deadpool in both of the Marvel Ultimate Alliance games in 2006 and 2009 respectively, which were kind of the spiritual successors to the X-Men Legends games. The character also appeared as voiced by Stephen Bloom in the X-Men Origins Wolverine video game, and has gone on to appear in pretty much every major Marvel Comics game release, with most of his appearances also hiring Nolan North to provide his voiceover. For the 2013 game, Daniel Way's writing, coupled with North's emphatic well-timed delivery, is one of the most wonderful things to behold about the experience of watching the game's story unfold. One of my personal favorite interactions in the game comes early on in Wade's dumpy apartment, when Deadpool talks with, wait for it, Nolan North, on the phone, about taking the voiceover job for the game he just convinced High Moon Studios to make. Listen in. Nolan! Hey, what's up, buddy? We're making a game about me! Gotta have you do the VO, man. Now, you see, here's the thing. People tell me we sound alike. That sounds awesome, Deadpool. Listen, I had a different take on it. Maybe we just make you, you know, maybe it's an alternative type of Deadpool. You know, it's somebody that's like, forget the boobs. Let's just go for pecs. You know, pecs and biceps. Forget girls. Why don't you just contact my agent for the booking and, and we'll see what we can do. <laughs> He's so in. Look, Deadpool, I, I got another call. Yeah, well, fuck you, Nolan. <laughs> Trust me, that's just the tip of the iceberg when it comes to North's acumen for giving the Merc with a Mouth his voice in this project. The story basically goes like this. Deadpool is sitting in his apartment when he informs us that he's threatened the developers at High Moon Studios to make an awesome video game starring himself. After they try to rebuff him, which he responds to by blowing up part of their offices, they send the script for the game over to his apartment, and Deadpool reads part of it. He reads far enough to see that it sends him on a mission to assassinate a corrupt media mogul, which then brings him into contact with recognizable Marvel villains like Arclight and Vertigo. After some headway is made, you and Deadpool will realize that the big villain of the whole story is actually classic X-Men villain Mr. Sinister, and Deadpool then decides to team up with members of the X-Men, including Wolverine, Rogue, Psylocke, and Domino, 
to follow Sinister to the former mutant nation of Genosha to put a stop to his shenanigans once and for all. Along the way, you'll encounter some pretty laugh-out-loud funny segments throwing back to classic games like The Legend of Zelda, as well as funny instances of the game apparently breaking before your very eyes. These scenes cause Deadpool to call up the devs at High Moon, lambast them for a few seconds, and then they fix it and you can resume playing. Oh, and there's also one point where you get an achievement or trophy for slapping an unconscious Wolverine 105 times. Trust me, I counted before it finally popped. Another awesome element that was given service was the pretty classic partnership between Deadpool and Nathan Summers himself, Cable. In fact, one of the funniest moments is probably in listening to the song that Cable's bio plays to when you're prompted in your first encounter with him. Listen to this, and try not to at least crack a smile. If you've ever read an issue of the series that teams these two characters together, then you'll probably really enjoy having a chance to play with one of comics' best odd couples. Whether you're a fan of the character from the comics, have just discovered him in this year's movie, or just happen upon this game and discover him for the first time, chances are you'll find plenty to like about the Deadpool character. The game's instances of surreal chaos are often genuinely funny in places, and it's always fun hearing Wade talk directly about the fact that he's in a game, riffing on Marvel or talking about how death wants him. The story accounts for the largest reason to play this game, because it's pretty obvious that High Moon Studios, Daniel Way, and Nolan North all had a lot of fun in bringing every notable aspect of this beloved, vulgar character to life. There is something of a caveat with that, though. Deadpool is, after all, a video game, so the big question centers around how well it plays, and, unfortunately, in that regard, it doesn't play nearly as well as the humor does. It's not that it's a bad game per se, and to its credit, it does intertwine a lot of different elements into the core experience. At its heart, Deadpool is a third-person action game that's primarily centered around shooting and melee combat. Its melee mechanics are probably the soundest element of the gameplay experience, with three different weapon choices allowing for upgrading options as you progress through the story. The first melee weapon set is Deadpool's twin katana swords, which allow for a little bit of range and pretty deft attacks. Primarily, there's a light and heavy attack button, and once you've progressed a little bit into the upgrade tree, you can pull off some pretty cool-looking combos by alternating between the two buttons. There isn't a lot of incentive, though, to learn any specific combinations. You just kind of mash your fingers between the two attack buttons, and when you learn an effective scenario, you rinse and repeat. The other two face buttons on the controller, if you're playing on a console, of course, are reserved for standard and double jumping and using Deadpool's teleportation ability. On an Xbox 360 or Xbox One controller, A is jump, B is teleport, X is light attack, and Y is heavy attack. On a PS3 or 4, X is jump, circle is teleport, square is light attack, and triangle is heavy attack. The other two melee weapons included a pair of size, as well as a pair of mini sledgehammers that are terrible for combos, but are excellent for dishing out a lot of damage. There are some combos you can pull off with all three melee choices, but for the most part your best option is going to be to upgrade your katanas for damage bonuses and other stronger combo perks. 
Of course, paying service to the teleportation ability of the character is also promising, at least on paper. You might think that the teleport could potentially make the combat very unique when compared with some other games, but the difference was only marginal. In melee combat, you'll receive a prompt to press the teleport button before an enemy swipes at you, and if you press it at the right time, you pop in behind the enemy and swipe at them with your melee weapon, usually launching anyone within your sword's swinging radius back a little bit. The effect overall is pretty similar to the counter button used by the free flow combat system in the Batman Arkham games. It just looks a little flashier. The teleport is useful though for avoiding explosives. About halfway through the story mode you'll encounter these heavier enemies that shoot grenades from a cannon that will stick to you. If you do get stuck, a quick press of the teleport button will get it off of you and usually give you enough distance to avoid getting blown up. You can then throw your ranged weapons, like your own grenades, mines, or my personal favorite, bear traps. Likely one of the most frustrating elements of the combat in the game though, for me at least, was the gunplay. I've gotta be honest here, Uncharted has absolutely spoiled me when it comes to solid cover-based shooting mechanics. When I first started playing Deadpool, I was hopeful that it was going to follow the Uncharted template in some capacity just because it seems like it would make sense for a third person game where you have access to both guns and melee weapons to have a cover mechanic. The major difference of course between Deadpool and Uncharted is that Deadpool has a focus on melee with gunplay as a secondary combat method. In Uncharted this dynamic is reversed, necessitating cover a bit more. What I found most frustrating about the shooting element of Deadpool is how surprisingly imprecise it feels. The most accurate weapons are clearly the pistols, and when you pull the left trigger to aim them, a crosshair looks like it gets precise enough to shoot a pube off of Sinister's- Yikes, I've been playing this game too much. When you actually try to crack off a couple of headshots in a row though, it becomes pretty difficult to actually maintain the precision that the crosshairs kind of trick you into thinking that you'll have. When you start to encounter some of the heavier enemies later in the game, particularly Sinister's exploding suicide clones, you're much more likely to have greater success with a heavier duty weapon like the shotguns or Cable's futuristic pulse rifles. Since there's a total lack of a cover element as well, shooting becomes even more laborious. If you find yourself in the middle of a bigger firefight with enemies taking pot shots from a lot of different directions, you'll have to pop out of aiming and actively run to find cover so you can regroup and see where the different hails of bullets are coming from. Teleporting is only a mild help too. If you try to teleport yourself behind a wall, even if it's a wall that you could get behind from walking around it, you'll just rematerialize in front of it. The teleport doesn't actually allow you to move past an object that could be directly in front of you. It just places you in front of it when you re-emerge. So, when comparing the shooting and melee combat elements, melee is much more fun. Even when surrounded by a lot of enemies with swords, it doesn't necessarily feel like you're really that overwhelmed. With a quick tap for a teleport counter and some pretty distinct pop-up and heavy combos, it's pretty fun to drop into the middle of a large room and take enemies with your swords. In specific instances as well, there's a very light stealth element. Before one encounter with Mr. Sinister, you're tasked with sneaking around his throne room and quietly dispatching his thugs guarding his throne. These moments can also be pretty funny too, since Deadpool will enthusiastically tell you to watch what he's about to do to the poor bastard in front of him. 
With the swords, he usually cuts the head off from behind, jumps up in the air, and on his way down, takes both of their arms off. If you pop out of stealth unintentionally though, which is surprisingly easy to do, you can get hit pretty hard and potentially die pretty fast. This brings me to my next gripe about the game, the health meter. Incidentally, this feature of the game goes back to one of my main criticisms of the Deadpool character. He cannot die. People are always complaining about Superman being practically invincible, but in the case of Deadpool, he's actually invincible. Someone can decapitate him and it still won't shut Wade up. He'll still make wisecracks about your mom along with a fart joke from his disembodied head. Now, of course, you can't have a video game that makes it impossible to die. If the danger of losing doesn't exist, then how would you feasibly be able to call that a game? Deadpool kind of addresses this by having Wade's health bar regenerate after a period of time where you haven't taken any damage. It's perfectly in line with his established mythology from the comics, where he was bestowed a healing factor straight from Wolverine's DNA. The problem with this, though, weirdly enough, is that High Moon has made it far too easy to die. While the enemies in the early going aren't much of an issue, when you start to take on some of the heavier duty enemies, they may need to hit you as little as once to kill you and make you start over. It's a little difficult to actually live out the fantasy of being a nearly unstoppable mutate killing machine if you're basically just as vulnerable as, well, me. This is even stranger because of the fact that you encounter the Marvel Universe version of Death, a lady who has Thanos wrapped around her finger, and in her bio, Wade explains that he and she can never be together because he can't die. When you get killed by a single hit from an enemy that's not a boss, it kind of takes the thrust of that statement away. Perhaps the most frustrating instance of this that I encountered in my playthrough is when, after rescuing Rogue, you then take control of her. Rogue, of course, is a member of the X-Men who can absorb a mutant's powers by touching their skin, so she absorbs Deadpool's healing factor and, while he's unconscious, takes on a bunch of Mr. Sinister's clones. While the moment is meant to make you feel powerful, it actually became extremely frustrating. She didn't take Wade's teleport, so when the music cranks up and the voices inside Wade's head start talking about how much ass Rogue kicks, you may likely get a little angry at dying over and over again. Granted, some of that might be attributed to my menial skill in playing some video games. But it reminded me of the moment in the first Star Wars The Force Unleashed game, where the designers clearly intended Starkillers pulling a Star Destroyer out of the sky to be cool, and where it instead became clumsy, poorly controlled, frustrating, and frankly stupid. To be fair, of course, though, this was one moment of an otherwise intriguing campaign. The game's story was creatively written, and its sense of humor was oftentimes hilarious. As an exploration of the character, I think it stands up as a solid, surreal, and truthful Deadpool story, but as a game, it's a bit more of a mixed bag, which I hesitate to say because the developers at High Moon Studios are obviously talented people. So, how did the game hold up with critics? Overall, it was pretty mixed and actually skewing towards negative. Deadpool was first released in North America for the Xbox 360, PS3, and PC on June 25th, 2013. 
The lowest scores came from the UK's official PlayStation Magazine and Videogamer.com, who both scored it 5 out of 10. In the case of the UK's OPM, the review title says the most about their overall perception of the game when it says, quote, Marvel's Meta Man runs headfirst into the fourth wall. For Videogamer.com, reviewer Brett Phipps sums things up by saying, quote, Deadpool is a great character wrapped in a standard and short action experience. It can be fun in quick bursts, but the lack of a real challenge until the very end means it tires quickly. By sticking to a generic formula, it undermines the way Deadpool literally tears up the script. Both GameSpot and Game Trailers awarded it a score of 5.5 out of 10, with GameSpot's Tom McShay writing, quote, Despite the combat flaws, Deadpool makes a valiant attempt at being entertaining. However, there are just too many flaws in the overarching mechanics to make this a consistently satisfying endeavor. Deadpool tries to hide its problems behind an exuberant personality, but all the talking in the world can't smooth over some fundamental flaws. Its most common rating is 6 out of 10, which was earned from outlets like Eurogamer, Game Informer Magazine, and IGN. In the case of the latter, Chuck Osborne concludes, quote, Developer High Moon gets the character and brings the funny, but none of the action finesse that would make Deadpool stand out. If you're a fan of boob jokes and dumb, repetitive, yet mildly fun gameplay, then Deadpool will offer you a weekend's worth of silliness. On the more positive end of the spectrum, the game's highest recorded score from a credible review outlet comes from the United States' official Xbox magazine. In their review, writer Cameron Lewis says, quote, Oddly, the difficulty spikes awkwardly during the last hour or so, when you'll suddenly find yourself beset by ranged gunmen capable of reducing you to shredded cold cuts much too quickly. It's always a shame to see a runner stumble just before the finish line. Luckily, the rest of Deadpool is so light on its feet and so steadfastly amusing that you're bound to remember all of the pleasure and none of the pain, end quote. He scored it an 8 out of 10. To me, the thing that's ultimately so disappointing about this experience is that High Moon Studios' body of work clearly indicates that they're a capable game development house. Unfortunately, though, Deadpool currently stands as the last game they developed solely on their own. In the last few years, they've been relegated to creating last-gen ports for entries in the Call of Duty series, taking the work of Sledgehammer games for 2014's Advanced Warfare and basically demastering it so that it could be played on the now-aging hardware of the Xbox 360 and PS3. They were charged with a similar task for last year's Call of Duty Black Ops 3, but the last-gen version of that game was only for the multiplayer element, and it just simply looks and plays in a vastly inferior fashion than the proper new-gen version. They also seem to be assisting famed Halo developers Bungie with creating material for their massive online shooter, Destiny, and rumor has it that High Moon is working closely with Bungie on the development of Destiny's proper sequel, which is scheduled to be released in 2017. That's not even looking at the larger relationship between Activision and Marvel. As it currently stands, the final Marvel-related game from Activision was 2014's The Amazing Spider-Man 2, based off the film directed by Mark Webb. Sometime before that, though, and mere months after Deadpool was released in stores, some specific component of the licensing deal between Marvel and Activision abruptly came to an end in early January of 2014, and all of the titles developed between the two 
disappeared from online storefronts like Xbox Live, the PlayStation Network, and Steam. The majority of 7th Gen Activision published Marvel games were unavailable digitally on these storefronts for a year and a half before, all of a sudden, select titles including Deadpool became available again. Then, on August 31st, 2015, Activision announced that they would be re-releasing Deadpool on new-gen consoles, namely the Xbox One and PlayStation 4, in November of that year, a mere few months before the character's movie would be hitting theaters. Speaking as someone who's played both versions, I can tell you, absolutely no remastering of any kind was done on the new-gen release of the game. It's a straight port, so if you're on the fence about picking up Deadpool because you think they may have made some enhancements to it, you don't need to worry about it. So, if the Deadpool game from High Moon Studios has earned any legacy, it seems to me that they successfully recreated the sense of humor and overall crudeness of the license, but that in the end, the gameplay doesn't end up matching the creativity of the story's sharp wit. Is Deadpool worth playing? Yeah, I think so. If you're already a fan of Wade's, then Nolan North's great performance is likely worth the price of admission on its own. If you consider yourself a more casual player who tries only to play solid games, though, then it may be worth skipping. It all comes down to how much you really love the vulgar, chimichanga-loving enigma that is Wade Wilson. I tend to really appreciate Daniel Way's ability to write him, so for me, I'm just fine with playing through the story and seeing what Way's got in store for him. If I ever play through it again, though, I'll just have to remember that I'm playing for the story first and just a few components of gameplay second. The rest, unfortunately, I could take or leave. Bottom line, your mileage may vary. Wolverine! My healing factor came from his DNA. So we're like twins, except he's short and furry, and he smells funny. He loves it when people ask him if they can fly the blackbird. He's got these awesome adamantium claws that cut through anything, including my body when I piss him off. That's going to do it for issue number four of Comics on Consoles. I really appreciate your taking the time to download and listen to the show, and I hope you enjoyed listening to the story of High Moon's Deadpool. Before I leave you, I just wanted to share some things with the listeners. I was looking over the download stats of the show, and I was floored when I realized that so far, of the first three issues as well as the point one and zero issues, we've reached people in an astonishing 29 countries. When I started doing this, I had no idea that I would have listeners from as far away as Slovenia, Russia, Serbia, the Netherlands, Croatia, Latvia, Romania, Portugal, and several others. I was maybe expecting to find listeners in a few of the corners of the United States, maybe a few from our neighbors to the north and south in Canada and Mexico, and perhaps a few places like the UK and Australia. To all of you who've downloaded the show from across the world, thank you very much for at least checking out what we have to say, and I hope you've enjoyed it. To everybody who's listened from my backyard in Chicago to my old home near Seattle, and to numerous other nations across the globe, I hope you'll come back to join us next month as we explore another comics-based video game. Which, naturally, brings me to the subject game for our next issue. I've actually mentioned it on the show before in our very first issue that focused on Batman Begins. You might recall my saying when talking about other Dark Knight-based games that released in 2003, 
Earlier that same year, another Batman game was released on consoles as well, a title that some people feel can be a viable contender for worst superhero game ever made, but that one's going to make for a very interesting episode of this show in and of itself down the road. Well, the time for that issue has come. As we leave February, March will bring us 2016's second comics-based blockbuster, a film which is probably one of the year's most anticipated. That film is, of course, Warner Brothers' Batman v Superman Dawn of Justice, so like we did with this issue, I thought it might be fun to jump into a game featuring one of the characters that are being adapted into a film. So, we're heading back to Gotham City for our fifth issue, but unlike our first one, this isn't exactly a diamond in the rough as far as gameplay is concerned. It plays poorly. But you might be surprised to learn about the layer of greatness that actually surrounds some pretty terrible mechanics. So, be sure to join us next month as Comics on Consoles issue number 5 focuses on a game which will forever live in infamy, Batman Dark Tomorrow, developed by HotGen and published by Chemco in March of 2003, for the Microsoft Xbox and the Nintendo GameCube. Even more exciting, I have a very special guest currently slated to join me for issue number 5, but I don't want to promise anything just yet. I know how wonky scheduling can be, so keep your eyes peeled to our profiles on Facebook and Twitter, as well as our new website, comicsonconsoles.com, for more information as we get closer to that issue's release. Look for it to drop sometime in March. So, like I said, be sure to like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, check out ComicsOnConsoles.com, as well as our broadcast partner, GeeksGamers.com. If you haven't already, be sure to subscribe to the show on Podbean, iTunes, or your own favorite podcast app, and feel free to send me any questions, comments, or ideas by emailing Chris at ComicsOnConsoles.com. Until next time, keep saving the world, gamers and comics fans. After all, the world needs people who continue to believe in heroes. So, why not play one in a video game? Thanks again for listening, take care, and we will talk with you again soon. Who the fuck is that? He's a man out of time. Who the fuck is that? He likes to fight crime. Who the fuck is that? He ain't got a clue. Who the fuck is that? But he ain't a fool. He's fucking cable.